Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When I was in New York, I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer. I was at that point a seventh generation wish. I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk. I couldn't open my eyes. I, I believe my eyes were rolling back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, God, is there evidence of human sacrifice? I guess so. Uh-huh. Are we doing the acapella version of Conspiranormal? Is that what we're doing? No, dude, that's the new intro song. That's the acapella that you've been, you've been asking for for months. Yeah, there we go. Acapella cheap beer song. That would be wicked, though. That's a good idea. Look who's here, Rob. Woo! Luke sightings. <laughs> this is a guy that decides to show up every now and again. Yeah. In, in his defense, he actually was here the last time. We just uh, thank you. We, we've been doing these uh, two episode. Um, yeah, days, the, the early Sunday you know? shows are rough. Yeah, you know, like, like it's hard for Luke to get here at four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, man. Uh, <laughs> w- without a job and my white privilege, like you know, supplying me money, <laughs> it, it's just hard to make it to things like this. Like I've got, I've got, you know. Computer time in the morning, shower, 
You know, and then uh-huh. I, I got to pretend like Quality I'm looking. Quality Luke, Tom. Yeah, I got to pretend like I'm looking for a job after all that's done. You know, do it, you go? Do you go to like the? Uh, do you go like to Walgreens or like gas stations and get applications and fill them out so that unemployment doesn't? You don't get yeah, your unemployment taken I, away. I put like you know, crusty butthole is like the <laughs> like the name on the application. So so I know that they won't ever hire me, but I could show it to Kira and be like, hey babe, you know. <laughs> Look, I'm applying for McDonald's. I'm applying for jobs, baby. <laughs> While I'm drinking a beer. <laughs> Scratching your big belly. <laughs> yeah, I applied at three today, babe. <laughs> well, I understand that uh, life has been taking a toll on you lately, Luke. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's time to leave the party in behind, but um, I refuse to. It's not going to oh, happen. Oh, man. I mean, you're going to hit the big 3-0 next year, yeah, dude. Oh, God, dude. Well, it's like it's like staring into an abyss, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's you can still party after thirty. You just have to have the next day off. Everything. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Make sure you do that. Do Take you know, it from experience, from me <laughs> and from Rob. As I inch closer to to thirty, like the depression just worsens. It's like, okay, what? Are oh, you, bad. What What are you doing with your life, dude? You know, <laughs> like look in the mirror. Are you gonna ever produce anything? <laughs> well, I mean. I know how to help you there, but uh, you do get to go get to do to, you do get to go to cool parties. Oh yeah, totally. So tell us about the party that you went to the, the well, last night. Well, so for for our listeners, <laughs> this, is, that, this is actually a sequel to a party that yeah, you for, went to before. for our <laughs> listeners that were around for the uh, the Cirque de So Gay party. <laughs> we got the second installment. Well, actually, it's more like the fifth or sixth installment, but this time it was Bronies and Barbies. <laughs> Explain. <laughs> <laughs> Explain the concept of a brony for for our listeners that may not know. A, a brony is is a middle aged dude that that loves 4chan and they they love to uh, do sexually explicit things to My Little Pony. <laughs> oh, I didn't know it was like a sex thing. Oh, I thought yeah. it was like just guys dressing up as My Little Pony no. and, and really loving like you no, know like My a, Little Pony and the messages to, to therein. Be, to be on to, to be a top level brony dude, you have to do yeah yeah the sexually explicit part comes into play. So where does the Barbies? How does that fit in with the whole the whole party motif? <laughs> um, I'm not sure, man. Like whenever you know, I'm I'm not bashing gay people or nothing, but like whenever they start. Being creative, there's no telling. It's it's a mixed bag. Like man, there's no telling what they're gonna come out with. So it was just a bunch of <laughs> random decorations that like made no sense together. So were the Barbies <laughs> were they actual women, or are we talking about transvestites? I mean, what are we talking about here? Uh, I mean, there there was a giant like scale mannequin inside of a Barbie box that they built around it, and they're incredible artists. I mean, mm-hmm. like it it actually looked like a Barbie in a Barbie box. And then they did one for G.I. Joe, too, that was on the other side of the party. And they're, like, facing each other. And there's, like, there's strobe lights everywhere. And the, uh, it was that awesome. That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, it was really this cool. This was in somebody's house? It, it's in the backyard on Dickerson Road. Okay, so this wasn't even East Nashville. This mm-hmm. was this was Dickerson Road. Dickerson Road, yeah. Everybody doesn't know, East Nashville, or as, or as Jeff likes to say on the Leisure Hour, or our listeners in the Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia, uh, East Nashville is kind of like the trendy part of Nashville, where all the hipsters all the hipsters live. Yeah, that's where all of our transplants are going, in West Nashville. So, 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 tell me about the party. Like, tell me, like, what what happened over there? <laughs> well, it, like, as, soon, you know? as soon as I came in, they I got myself a pride beard. <laughs> they you got paid, yourself a gay pride beard, like you had a rainbow beard. Yeah, I had, yeah, 
She she got fluorescent paints and uh, uh-huh. there's a chick there just like uh, giving everyone face paint and she she painted me up all pride colors and then a dude dressed as a fox and like a you know like a, oh the, so the furries were there yeah again, oh yeah huh? totally they're there again so so the fox guy like showed me around the party <laughs> and he's all stoked about his Pac Man decorations <laughs> what <laughs> the, there there was a giant light bright. I, I got hit on by a, a dude that was like a sparkly blue troll. A giant light bright? Yeah. Like a working functional yeah, giant? Yeah. It, it was like hundreds of water bottles, and they all had um, water in them that had food dye. So they were all like different colors. And so there was this huge box that they built with a bunch of circles and just like lights in them. So right. you take the water bottles and like stick it in the holes. That's awesome. And the, the DJ was playing some like some like really girly music. <laughs> well, like uh, you know, Stacy Q, or like something? Pat Benatar, yeah, uh, Stacy Q, stuff like that. Two of Hearts, yeah. two of Hearts, <laughs> two Hearts that beat has one. I need you, I need <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> <laughs> We all we all know your love for Stacy Q for 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 mid to late eighties. I do uh, really like that song. Synth, uh, synth pop. I mean, who doesn't? Who doesn't like that song? I mean, come on. You're not American if you don't like. If that you song. don't like Stacy Q, dude, I don't even know what to talk to you about. <laughs> <laughs> so, what? Anything else happen over there? Or you just? Uh, well, Kira got really drunk and was like twerking on the dance floor. I'm sure and- she really wants every like you know the worldwide <laughs> audience to know this. Like, I mean. Uh, whatever i mean we all do it <laughs> what, twerking you know. is a natural thing yeah mm-hmm. she's in her natural habitat yeah there's no twerk shaming here Adam. <laughs> <laughs> who are these people that uh put this stuff on like what's the like are they artists i mean what uh yeah i mean like they're they're all involved in the art community and they're like in the lgbt community mm-hmm. too like hardcore what's lgbtq oh sorry right. i forgot about the q Luke. who's that Qbert? questioning what? oh gotcha i didn't even know you taught me something yeah well <laughs> just you know next time you go and you say hey guys i support the lgbt community and it's like oh, excuse me it's lgbtq just one dude in the back is a q yeah yeah well so so like after after we were all good and sloppy and it was time to go home uh she decided that she wanted waffle house and we go to the one over here by the interstate. Like the only time to go to Waffle House, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And I, I walk in there, and we're all painted, you know, gay pride colors and everything, including my nephew that was with me. <laughs> and, <laughs> you took your, how old is your nephew again? Uh, <laughs> he's 16. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> we, I'm sure that was an experience. Maybe he was questioning after that. <laughs> he's the cue. <laughs> No, but like so anyway, uh we walk into this this waffle house and um everybody in there just stops what, what they're doing and they all look at us at the same time and um this chick just blurts out as soon as I I walk in the door, she just blurts out, Uh sorry, we closed. We closed for the night. And I like, was like I thought they were up in twenty four hours. They are. And there was like four people at the at the uh, bar eating, like with their plates and everything. Had hadn't even finished their meals yet. And, uh, um, they just want the damn freak show showing yeah. up. That's what it was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, I was like, all right, well, fine. I'll go to another Waffle House then. And she's just like, all right, fine. You do that. All right. So did you end up at another one? Yeah. We had another weird lady 
waiting on us at, as to be expected. Waffle House is an interesting place at three o'clock in the morning. It's I'll good, tell some you good that. people watching, dude. <laughs> I mean, it, it is an interesting place. I mean, that's all. <laughs> that's all I'm gonna say. Especially, especially in the in the in the really bad part of Hermitage. <laughs> but anyway, well, you weren't here for the last show, and since it actually is the same day, I just wanted to get your thoughts on uh, Donald Trump and his. I, I don't even want to talk about. It. <laughs> yeah, that that's funny though. I don't mind talking about that. <laughs> Man, I I uh, I didn't even look into it today. I just heard people talking about it. Uh, my nephew was talking about it. Squashy was talking about it. So that's all I've got. That's yeah. all I know. And I heard the video playing on her phone. But uh, what did Kira think about it? She just like grimaced and shook her head because she hates him. She hates yeah. him so much. And I'm like, I'm like, babe, don't get involved in all this. You know, it's right. They're playing. They're playing you right now. Yeah, that's that's what I believe too. They're playing your emotions. We talked about that. Well, that that, and if anybody's surprised that he would say something like that on or off a mic, shamelessly, Mm -hmm. like I mean, that's ridiculous as well. (laughs) I I think that men are going to have a different opinion of it. They may still be disgusted by it, but they may have an opinion of it to where, like we, like I said before in the last episode, that. People are going, men are going to have an idea of, like, you well, you guys trash talk, they bullshit, you know, I mean, you, you hear that kind of stuff a lot. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter if you're 17 or if you're uh, um, 59 years old, you know, there are guys that are, that, that are like that. And I think Trump is that, is that kind of guy. So for most guys, they're going to hear that and it's going to go in one ear and out the other. They're not going to think about it. But for a lot of women, and I think the... A lot of women, I think, is objectionable. And I think really the part that's objectionable to most, not the fact that, you know, they see the soap opera actress walk up towards them and they're like, look at the tits on her, you know, not like that, but more like, you know, his whole thing about grabbing, grab them by the pussy, you know, that (laughs) that is a little tantamount, I think, to rape. So I could see women being very upset, very upset about that. You know, no, I mean, it, no, it, 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 it is kind of funny in a way, but in, in another Adam way, Adam say it, it especially. Like. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and I'm just like a schoolboy that just like giggles at anything in inappropriate. Well, I mean, you laugh about, you know, clowns and all that kind of stuff anyway. And, yeah. and speaking of clowns, we're going to have Steve Stockton on and we're going to talk about his book, My Strange Life. Um, and we're going to talk, I want to talk a little bit about with him about the Phantom Clowns. I'm kind of chomping at the bit to hear what he thinks about it. So, if there's nothing else we want to add, I think we'll go ahead and go to the guest. Go for it. All right, guys, we will be back with Steve Stockton on Conspiracy Normal. Hello, everybody. Sorry to interrupt your show. My name is Joe. I'm the creator of Ghost Pro VR. Ghost Pro VR is an advanced augmented reality headset. It actually allows the users to capture real ghosts and other paranormal activity in their environment. This is completely real. It's not a toy. If you're interested in ghost ghost hunting, the paranormal, or just really cool technology, you'll want to visit our website. It's www.ghostpro.us. That's G-H-O-S-T-P-R-O dot U-S. And check it out if you like it. Subscribe to our Twitter and follow us. Thanks for listening. 
Alright guys, ladies and gentlemen, ghosts and ghouls, we are here for the second edition of our Halloween extravaganza on Conspiranormal. And I have a guest that we had on last year that uh, been wanting to get on and uh, wanting to pick his brain about a certain subject now for weeks. And that is Mr. Steve Stockton. Steve, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Oh, thanks, Adam. Glad to be here. Been wanting to come back since last year. Oh yeah, absolutely. You were one of our okay. uh, favorite guests last year. Oh, awesome. Thank you. And uh, you were, we're actually not on Skype. You're on a phone because uh, uh, I guess the uh, the cable company has decided to stop working on you tonight. <laughs> Yeah, either that or uh, it might have been the, the Phantom Clowns or the Black Eyed Kids. I, I, I'm trying to blame them if I can. <laughs> yeah, I always blame those guys for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, how you been doing, man? Doing good. Been good. Having a good year so far. And this is my favorite time of year. So. Oh, yeah. And this is one of my favorite shows, so it doesn't get any better than this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh Let's talk about Phantom Clowns because this is one of Rob's favorite subjects. He he loves clowns. He loves to hang out with them. Yuck. And uh <laughs> you know, this has been going on now for a couple of months and I think still no end in sight. So you've been studying this for a long time and uh I kind of want to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, well I was I started keeping up with it back in the early 80s when the first Phantom Clown flap happened. Uh, Lauren Coleman wrote about it in Mysterious America. Uh, kind of the same circumstances. Started out kind of slowly, a couple of isolated sightings. Uh, I think one in, uh, let's say, like Boston, Pennsylvania, somewhere like that. And, um, and then it just kind of spread. Suddenly they were everywhere, and then just as mysteriously as they appeared, they were gone. And uh, didn't last too long, but um, there seemed to be more of a supernatural element at that time. There were times when the police would actually see the clown, say, in a van, give chase. The van would turn a corner, and then cops turn the corner of the van, and the clowns are gone. So there's... Something strange going on there. And of course, that was before you had the, the advent of the internet. So now, with uh, word traveling as fast as it does and rumors spreading, I think there's a lot of hoaxers too. A lot of people like, hey, here's something stupid we can do. Let's go dress as clowns <laughs> and chase kids, you know, in the woods. Right. And uh, I just, I, you couldn't pay me to dress up as a clown and go out in the woods right now. Uh, I'm just waiting for people to get shot. There's been a couple of reports. Don't know how true they are. People having been shot because they were dressed as clowns. Another guy was supposedly attacked uh, with a baseball bat because he was dressed in a clown suit standing on the side of the road. So, yeah, but I think think there's something to it. There's some kind of impetus there, you know, that starts. Of course, the the origin of the, the current clown look really started in the uh the miracle plays of middle ages during the children's crusade and then that was to portray the devil so there you go there's some devil tree in there and then throughout basically all your comparative religions you've got some sort of trickster you've got some sort of jester you've got some sort of figure that you know does things just to shake people up for fun yeah, and th- this time I-, I think that what is what is fueling this has been the internet, and I think in one of two what in two ways really, one would be kind of the mass hysteria 
that the internet and and by extension Facebook can put out there. And second of all is the kind of the copycat effect of people saying, oh, this is cool. Let's go dress up like clowns and freak people out. Mm-hmm. And then there's there have been some schools and things put on lockdown because of threats on Twitter. There's, I saw the other day where they had, uh, I don't think they arrested or anything, but they had admonished a, a middle school girl for um, creating a Twitter that was like the evil New Jersey clown or something like that in the <laughs> yeah. school. So it's just... <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty it's it's pretty ridiculous what what's going on with that. Luke, you got any insights on the clown phenomenon? I, I wanted to do it myself until things started getting <laughs> ugly. <laughs> <laughs> that one story, I believe, uh I think it was Indiana uh that the somebody was shot and killed by by someone else. I think that actually turned out to be a fake story. So I'm not sure that anyone has actually been uh, shot and killed. I think some people. I think that maybe some clowns have been shot at. Yeah, yeah. I'm just just waiting. And then there's a lot of people on Facebook that are very, you know, angry toward clowns. You know, any clowns <laughs> come in my yard, they're going to get shot. You know, that type of thing. So that's. Yeah. I don't know how legal that would be. To I mean, you still might be guilty <laughs> of homicide or. A, yeah, or if, they're, a, if they're not in your house, worse, yes, but. Yeah, if they're not breaking in, because there was a, a few years ago on Halloween, there was a foreign exchange student that wandered up onto the porch of the wrong house. And uh, the kid was, I think he was from Japan, didn't speak English very well. The owner of the house comes out with a gun and tells him to freeze. The guy didn't understand what he was saying, and the owner of the house shot him. <laughs> oh, and geez. he claimed castle law, but they, they still charged him with manslaughter. Jeez. That- so... Things do, and that, that's that's a real story. So things do happen, you know, inadvertently and unfortunately like that. But I think if you dress up as a clown and start creeping around people's yards, you're just you're inviting trouble. Although according to Amazon, uh, sales of clown outfits are up three hundred percent. Yeah, I heard that the other day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you this too about the clown phenomenon. That you know, it seems very interesting that. We are in this election year, and we're in a very contentious election year. Although I don't know now with the uh, with the revelations about Trump that have come out, but you know it's interesting that we get all this kind of hysteria and this phantom clown wave during this election year. It's almost like there's some very psycho. There's a very uh, psychological and, and, and Jungian thing going on here. Yeah, and maybe it's a diversion, or, or like you said, something that's springing from the the mass conscious of people. You know, because the the first clown flap back in I think it was 1980 was right around the time that Ronald Reagan got elected. So yeah, there are some some strange correlations there. Hmm. Well, I've had I've had to wonder whether or not the like where where this whole thing started were these apartment complexes in South Carolina, and I've had to wonder if some of that. May have been some of these, you know, some of these people, kind of a lower income uh, apartment complex, and whether mm-hmm. some of these people that are kind of living on the edge, whether these are the first people to see it first because their lives are so, um, they're they're just so on the edge financially or, or emotionally that they would begin to see this. 
Yeah, maybe if it is some sort of, you know, black bag operation or something to destroy Operation Phantom Clown, uh, maybe it's like uh, you had Robert Guthrie on. Maybe it's a comedian yeah. situation, you know, where they're they're going to try it in the, the poor neighborhoods with the people that aren't very credulous to begin with and then see what kind of reaction they get from the, the general population. It, right. it kind of boggles the mind when you go down that rabbit hole. Some kind of psychological experiment because, like, they were talking about how uh the the clowns were like had lights in the woods and they would follow the clowns to this abandoned house and they found and the cops actually stated that they found well they didn't find any like trace that anyone lived there but apparently it was owned by some kind of private company and they wouldn't uh-huh. say what this house was there for so i don't know you might be yeah. onto something there steve and they found clown paraphernalia. I want to know what clown paraphernalia. <laughs> yeah, that was my question. Yeah. <laughs> right? Didn't say you know clown costumes or a rubber nose or mask, but they found clown paraphernalia. It's like one of those flowers that squirts water. Or- <laughs> <laughs> this is Officer Jerry. We found some clown shoes out here in the forest line. <laughs> squeak, squeak. <laughs> they got a code for that? A police code? We got it. We got a ten sixty two. Well, well, Steve, <laughs> Rob actually, Rob actually has he he faced his fear of clowns the other day. So talk a little bit about that, Rob. Okay, yeah. So I, I'm not terrified of clowns. I just I'm very uncomfortable with clowns. But I have I have a group of friends. They're all actors, and they were putting on this play, and it was, um, it was sort of like a crime mystery, but it's all based around this like seedy underground clown scene. So. There was clowns everywhere, and I, I had I went to go watch the play to support them, and also to sort of face my fears. And it, it wasn't that bad. And I found out the worst the worst were the two two actors I don't know. The actors that I knew dressed as clowns were fine, but the ones I didn't know they kind of freaked me out. Uh huh. <laughs> the extras, like the the the, uh, the babysitter story, where the babysitter calls the parents and says. Can I do something with the clown doll and you, the life-size oh, clown God. doll in your daughter's room? It's freaking Ugh. me out. And they're like, there is no life-size clown doll. In yeah. That's, yeah, that's the most horrifying story ever. <laughs> Steve, have you ever had any personal experiences with phantom clowns or any odd stuff like related to clowns? Not really. I mean, I've never liked them myself either. I remember uh-huh. when I was a kid, we used to go to... Um, Gallenberg in the fall and at Ripley's believe it or not museum there they had some sort of clown exhibit and it had like taxidermy style eyes you know in this wax figure of course with the clown makeup and everything but the thing looked like it was a person standing there especially because of the shine from the eyes the eyes looked wet and just I used to hate that thing I used to hurry by that thing because you're just waiting for it to reach out and grab your I think I know what you're you talking about I think I remember seeing that at the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum when yeah, I was a kid. Thankfully, yeah. it, it was destroyed when the museum burned a few years ago. But yeah. <laughs> I, I always hated that thing. But other than that, I haven't had any real experience with a clown. I know in one of my, my books, a friend of mine that lives in New Jersey saw someone in a clown mask and tube socks and, and nothing else picking his way carefully through a briar patch in the, the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. But that's probably unrelated. <laughs> But uh, something else I was talking the other day to my friend, uh, Cisco Murdoch, who's into these kind of things. Soon. I yeah. She's listening. So hello, Cisco. And she was saying it's, it's almost like there's some sort of 
almost intelligent life out there that's trying to do something like, you know, they send the black eyed kids like, well, you know, everybody likes kids. We'll send kids, you know, and then people see these kids with black eyes and it freaks them out. Like, okay, back to the drawing board. I know clowns, everybody loves clowns. Let's send clowns. And then it scares everybody. So, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm waiting for the, the black eyed playboy models or the black eyed pizza delivery guy. You know, of course, maybe those exist and that works. And that's why we haven't heard about it. You know, I think there's something to be said there for that, because I think that you have various entities that at certain points, they will masquerade themselves as whatever we are either afraid of or whatever we are comfortable with or whatever they think we're comfortable with uh-huh. and that they actually make us afraid. We actually talked a little bit about that with our last guest, Sarah Soderland. And uh, that's an interesting concept in and of itself that this that these entities kind of reflect this because, you know, the... The scary clown, we've said this before, the scary clown motif has become really big in popular culture lately. It has been, I think, since around the time of the original uh, Phantom Clown that you described, the Phantom Clowns in the 80s. In fact, I think it's, I find it fascinating that there were at least two Phantom Clown ways in Chicago. And that's where mm-hmm. John Wayne Gacy was, and I'd say he's yeah, the root of the of the kind of evil clown motif. And then also, and then he had a marvelous quote that said, "There's nothing funny about a clown after midnight," and that that rings very very true. Yeah. Um, and also about that time, you had a, a movie that came out called Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Uh huh. <laughs> it kind of fueled into that. Then yeah. later in the eighties, you had uh, Pennywise from Stephen King's It. So it's just kind of kept building on that. And then, of course, you have uh, the Insane Clown Posse and their Juggalo fans that tend to dress up like <laughs> weird whoop. clowns and carry hatchets and baseball bats and things. So And, and drink Fago, which yeah. which Rob loves. He loves Fago. Only rock and rye. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, one of the things that's interesting and one of the stories about uh, John Wayne Gacy that I heard was that there was this guy that uh, was hanging out with Gacy. And this is one of the scariest stories I've ever heard. Like, I mean, it it literally is frightening when you think about it. And, like, apparently he was hanging out with Gacy. Gacy was drunk. And all of a sudden he just starts grunting and growling. Okay. And just, like, looked, like, totally demonic. While he was in full Pogo the Clown makeup, can you imagine yeah. that? Does that not send, <laughs> send, send shivers down your spine? I mean, honestly, like a possessed clown or a clown having an epileptic fit or something. Yeah, and this guy, <laughs> of course, of this guy, of course, did not know that Gacy was a serial killer and had thirty-three bodies buried in his crawl space. So you can only imagine about that well no wonder people are scared of clowns i mean yeah. <laughs> yeah. i'm sitting here laughing and at rob about one. it I mean, for a couple of years one clown but look at the influences he'll always be remembered yep. for that you know yep yep i think that's, that's really the thing you remember about him most not that there were 33 bodies under his crawl space or that mm-hmm. he was a pillar of the community that he was cleared by the uh Secret Service met with uh, the Carters, uh, Rosalind Carter, when she was in Tamalette, but that he dressed up as a clown, you know, and he did a lot of these things. That's Pogo the Clown. That's the memorable thing. And would paint pictures of himself in clown makeup. 
That was the other one. I used to have an original Gacy, and unfortunately, really? I sold it years ago before he passed away, and it's it'd be worth a fortune now. Wow, wow. that's awesome. that's pretty yeah, was, that's pretty morbid, though. You know, like that's yeah, it, it kind of creeped me out. It was uh, he had the painting was called Skull Clown. And it was one he he did it over and over and over. A lot of times the same one. He painted Pogo. He did the Skull Clown. He did a lot of Disney characters too, and they weren't very good. But yeah, I had the Skull Clown. The uh, there was a guy in Louisiana who was kind of like Gacy's art dealer, and I'd gotten it from him. I think I paid like a hundred dollars or something for it. But it's it had a, a, something to it. It had a heaviness. It had a, a yeah a noticeable presence or something to it. I mean, it might have been my imagination, but. I'm cued into things like that, you know, so I got rid of it. Right, right. Well, let's talk about uh, your, we have tonight your personal experiences. And last time we talked about things that happened to other people. Mm-hmm. But tonight I want to talk about, primarily about your book, My Strange Life. And what was it that gave you the idea to write this book specifically? Why did you want to kind of tell your own story? Well, it was when I would go on shows like this talking about the other books, that's kind of the way it would come up. People would be like, well, okay, you've written about other people's experiences. What have you ever experienced? And I started thinking about that. And I would tell the odd story here, too. A usual go-to is uh, when I saw a first full-body apparition when I was six years old. I usually tell that one. And one day I just started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I probably do have enough stories to make a book. And sure enough, I did. I sat down and... And thought about all the things that you know had ever puzzled me or scared me or bewildered me or things of the unexplained and the paranormal and and that's where the book came from. Okay. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it it's it, you have a lot of interesting stories in there, and I think a good place to start would be, well, that you called my first ghost. So what what happened there? Yeah, that one. I was six years old. Uh, we just had a family move in next door, and this was out in West Knox County, so it was kind of rural area. Next door was about a half a mile away, and uh, I was waiting for the... There was a kid that lived there that was a year younger than me, five years old. I was waiting for him to come home so we could play together, and I was about halfway out in the yard. Uh, our driveway was exactly 212 feet long. I'd measured it at another time when I was into uh, dirt bike racing. I was about halfway in the yard. I see a car come down the hill. I think it's my friend. So I start walking toward the street. Uh, the road made an inverted T right in front of our house. There was a stop sign there. So I'm walking toward the road, and, and then I realize, okay, that's not his mom's car. Well, all of a sudden, out from behind the car, I see a kid run out, and this was, uh, a toddler. He couldn't have been more than two years old. Still see how he was dressed. It was uh, blue shorts with suspenders, a white shirt, and a little matching blue cap. He darts around from the back of the car and runs in front of the car, crosses the road diagonally. And I'm thinking, hey, that kid needs to get out of the road. He's going to get hurt. I don't know who he is. I've never seen him. I knew the other people that, that live nearby there. And no reaction, no registration from the person driving the car. They look both ways turned to the right and went on down the dead end road. Well, the, the kid continues running down into our yard, down a little bank there. And if you've ever seen kids that have just barely mastered walking, they'll start running and then just sort of lose control and fall. Mm-hmm. 
And that was what he did. He, he was running along and just all of a sudden, boom, hit the ground. But the instant he hit the ground, he was no longer there. I mean, he literally ceased to exist. I didn't take my eyes off the spot. I was probably no more than 75, 80 feet away at this point. Went directly to the spot. There's nothing there. I mean, there was no hole for the kid to fall into. There was no nowhere that he could have gone. But it, it didn't scare me or anything. It just kind of puzzled me, you know, like, huh, you know, that's not supposed to happen. I just saw a kid disappear. And to this day, I have no idea what that was all about, who the kid was, what the meaning was behind that or anything. Uh, my grandmother, who I talk about in the book, she was a self-proclaimed gypsy witch. She liked to tell fortunes and do all these weird things, whole seances and table tappings and whatnot. I asked her about it much later in life, and she said that that was just the supernatural's way of letting me know that sometimes I would see things that were just for me that other people wouldn't see and wouldn't understand. So there you go. And that was really my introduction to the paranormal and and seeking out strange things and trying to make some sense of them. It's interesting how these kind of things can go in families. Like you do talk a little bit about your grandmother in the book, as you said, and um, you talk about how some of the stories that she would tell you would kind of scare you at a young age. And you also oh, talk I was scared about- to death of her. I mean, she looked like a witch, and she would always try to get me alone. And that was she. She could tell me things. She wanted to pass this legacy on me, she would tell me that I had a shine about me. I had no mm-hmm. idea what she was talking about. Or she, she would say that I was kind, and I thought she meant, you know, I was a good kid or whatever. But what she was meaning was that I was of a kind or of a like kind to what she was, who had this uh, second sight or, or whatever that would see and experience things. And another time, this one was really shook me up. We were on the way to her house. It was about a 30-mile oh, drive or so. And there was an area that we had to go through where a kid about my age had chased a ball onto the road and been killed by a car a few years before. And that spot would always kind of weird me out. When I went by there, I would think about it. I never said anything out loud, but I would just think, you know, their kid died here. I could sort of feel that. And we got to her house, and uh, she... Got me alone. She got me in. She had did been a dining room, and she changed it into like her area where she did her readings and things. She got me alone in there, and she said, "Sometimes you feel things." And I'm like, "Yeah." And she said, "Like that spot on the highway on the way here." And that just absolutely floored me because I hadn't said a word to my parents to no one, but she knew something that had happened, you know, miles and miles away from her house. She knew something that I had experienced. So. Of course, that terrified me. <laughs> but yeah. um, she died when I was 13, so I, I wish I'd gotten to know more about her in, in a time when I wasn't so scared. But she looked like a witch. I mean, she was a scary-looking person. So, now, what was uh, mm-hmm. what, what was her descent? I mean, was it because you 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 described her as kind of like gypsy? But uh, are we are we talking like actual gypsies, or are we or is that more of a According to family lore, they were from somewhere in the Carpathian Mountains. Oh, the, wow. Okay. The, like the real real gypsies. Then they had fled that area and uh, to escape um, whatever was going on at that time. And then had landed in, uh, I guess, Mussolini was who was oppressing those people at that time. They had fled that area and then ended up 
somewhere in Germany about the time Hitler rose to power. So like, okay, you know, bad choice. And then they came to America. Okay. So that's that's her side of the family. My my grandfather they're from Italy. So did did you have any like what about your mom or dad? Did they have any abilities like that? Uh, my mom did to an extent, but uh, uh, she was not to the extent that I did. It was, it was the first time I ever did Ouija board was with my mom when I was probably about that same age, about five or six years old. And uh, she had, had knowledge of the things. Of course, she had grown up in it, very, very superstitious people. There were just certain things you did not do. You didn't put a hat on the bed. You put a hat on the bed, you might as well shoot somebody because you've, you've killed somebody. Um, if you cut butter with anything other than a knife, somebody will die. You know, mm. all this stuff, you, know, you grow up around that. It kind of makes you, I don't know, it just kind of tunes into that side of things and makes you hyper aware of, a, of the dark side of, of life, I think. Yeah, these old world but, superstitions. Um, but my mom, she had participated, especially when she was younger, in some of the seances and table tappings and, and things like that. But uh, later on in life, she wouldn't have any part of it and wouldn't even talk about it. So she, she had kind of gotten beyond it. Okay. Yeah, I just I find it interesting how it runs in families. Like my own experience, I mean, my mother has always had a degree of kind of odd things that have happened to her. And uh, her grandmother uh, was always said to have been like a fortune teller. So it's mm-hmm. interesting how it, it kind of runs. It's almost a genetic component to this. Yeah, I think so. And it does tend to skip a generation. Uh, yeah. I have a, a daughter, and she's she has a little bit of the empathic ability, but nothing like I do. I think if she ever has kids, has kids, they'll be the ones that will, will get the, the brunt of it. But... So yeah, my grandmother, she read tea leaves, coffee grounds. Uh, she had some kind of oracle. She had, she called it throwing the bones, but it wasn't just bones. It was, was other stuff in there, too, that she could read. Um, she would also like if they were going to kill a chicken for Sunday dinner, she could study the entrails of the chicken and tell you things. And- wow. <laughs> That's brutal. So- <laughs> like, like, like what, what kind of stuff would she tell you about it? Like... Like was it just was it just like predicting things that would happen or? Yeah, it was. Uh, it seems like with the animals, it was more like uh, weather related stuff. They were they were farmers. They they truck farmed. Yeah, and they also raised cattle and they had horses and things. And uh, seems like when she killed the chickens and and would study the entrails, she would know what kind of harvest they were going to have, or if they were going to have a wet fall and have to put the hay up early and things like that. You know, it was. Uh, just bizarre. I mean, you can't imagine growing up around that kind of stuff where it's just, it's accepted, you know, just nobody questioned. Nobody was like, Granny, you're looking at chicken guts. You know, you can't tell them about when we need to put the hay up, but the majority of times she was right about things. Right, right. That was the the, the freaky part about it and, and why I guess that I bought into it so easily because, oh, like I said, you know, I, I, Thinking about a spot where a road gets down the road where a kid gets killed, and then she asked me about it when I get to her house, you know. So that's she had some sort of ability for mm. sure. Mm. Sounds like a lot of it. Let's talk about the ghost kittens. This is a creepy story. Yeah, that one was was really strange. Uh, we 
I grew up in a, a rancher, a one-level bedroom or a one-level brick rancher, three-bedroom house that my dad had built. And uh, some of my earliest memories are him standing me up in the uh, when they just had the subflooring on, putting me up in the house and letting me walk around. I couldn't have been more than six months old, so I've got really long-term memory. But uh, the house, the end of the house that my bedroom on was the high end of the house. It was set up on a little rise there and didn't have a basement, but we had a crawl space. And on that side of the house, it was maybe three feet. It was truly a crawl space. There wasn't enough room to stand up under there unless you were a small child. And then the farther back toward the other end of the house, you went to narrow it, got to where you had to literally lay down and crawl. Well, my dad kept that locked. There was a one door, a wooden door on the end with a big padlock on it. But when I laid in my bedroom floor, if I put my ear to the floor, as a hardwood floor, I could hear kittens. And that's, that's how it happened. I was reading a comic book in the floor one day, and I kept hearing kittens mewling. And I told my dad about it, and he goes down and looks, thinking, you know, that somehow a cat had gotten under the house and had kittens, but he knew himself there was no way for anything to get under there. And I heard it time and time again, and I would go searching for him. That was one of the games I would play when I was a kid. Was, you know, when you grow up out in the country by yourself, you have to make your own fun. So <laughs> right, yeah. I would go crawl around under the in the crawl space and look for these kittens. Never found anything, never heard anything while I was under there. But I could go back up, lay down in the, the floor, and hear the kittens. And this went on for years. The last time I heard them, I was 15 years old and had lived there since six months old. Uh, we moved when I was 15. Then the last night I spent in the house, they had already moved my bedding and stuff to the other house. I was just kind of staying with the house because we had some valuables that were still there. I slept on the floor of my bedroom and heard kittens mewling all night long. So literally for almost 15 years, I could hear the kittens under the house. Uh-huh. Uh, 15 years? <laughs> and and no, no one else could hear them, right? No, nobody else. I had friends who would come over and, and try to get them to listen to them. Nobody else could hear them. But that's the only place I heard him. I mean, it wasn't, you know, some kind of uh, auditory hallucination or anything. I didn't hear kittens everywhere I went, just specifically in that room of the house. If you had to speculate, what would have been, I mean, are we talking about the ghosts of animal spirits? Or are we talking, I mean... That's what I'm thinking. There's a story in my first book. That, that happened to some of my relatives where they had a, a cat that had kittens and the kittens died. And they took the kittens down by the creek and then buried them in the, the soft dirt there. And they said that for years afterwards, they would go back, if they went back to that area, when they, even as adults, they could hear kittens. So I, hmm. I think there's, you know, residual energy. I think there's things around and I didn't hear that story until after, you know, I, I was grown and had already experienced my own ghostly right. kittens. And I I think animals do have a way of staying around like that. I know somebody that had a uh, a hunting dog that passed away that, that he would see it after it was gone. He would see it just going around the corner of the house or or maybe hear it. But you know, the dog was deceased. So I I think some animals, not all, but some animals do have a way of, of hanging around instead of going to the afterlife or whatever animals do. 
Yeah, you'll hear stories about how people will hear like the the kind of like the familiar jingle of a dog's collar, uh, mm-hmm. that that kind of auditory thing going on, or maybe feel like the presence of the animal next to them. I mean, it, uh-huh. it, it, when you think about it a little bit, like your 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 dog or your cat, I mean, they're always in your house. Like you may leave, you may go to work, or you may go on vacation, but you know, an animal may be there all the time. So they're almost like the spirit of the house, almost themselves. Yeah, they're they're the sentry, they're the guardian, they're the yeah. one that you know the the battles whatever's there when you're not. So right, exactly. Rob, you lost an animal recently. Do you have ever had anything like that happen recently to you? No, no, not with Ryder, but I, I can see that, like, especially with what you're saying with them always being around, there's a yeah. lot of potential for like an energy imprint type of a, a situation or, you know, something like that. Right. Yeah, I could definitely see that for sure. Let's talk about Marshall says goodbye. Yeah, that's, that's another strange story. There's a, a lady that I worked with, I had two sons. One was a teenager and the other was not quite a teen at the time that I met them. And they're basically a handful, um, single mom. She was divorced and they were pretty much giving her a hard time, especially the older boy, Marshall. And, um, she asked me at work one day, she said, if I, and she knew I liked to skateboard. I was, a, a semi-pro skateboarder back in the 70s and still continued it on into the 80s well into my 20s and, and beyond but uh, one day she she didn't like to skate and she said if, if I paid you just you, got Luke's attention my... by the way <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah back back in the early 70s I'm semi-pro I was sponsored we had uh, skateboard parks in East Tennessee we would go around and do uh uh, freestyle you know, the, uh, and slalom the, the tours and well we did ramps and things too there wasn't a lot of the vertical there was some vertical riding back then but not the uh right. the, the airs and tricks that came later you know in the 80s and 90s with, with tony hawk and some of those guys but uh when we would do these demos i got to meet a lot of famous skaters i met tony alva Winslow rumel um uh, Shogo Kubo, a lot of these guys that went on to be either famous or infamous, uh, a lot of the Z-Boys and from that era. So it, it was an interesting time to be a skateboarder. That's awesome. <laughs> but uh, I digress here. Yeah, and uh, she's like, basically, if I paid you, you know, $20, would you hang out with my boys and go skateboarding with them? And I'm like, you know, I'll do that. You don't have to pay me. I like skating. I like passing that on to kids. So anyway, I developed a, a really good relationship with these two kids. I was kind of their big brother, if you will. And they would, they begged me to marry their mom, but there was just no interest there in that <laughs> regard. But, um, they really wanted me to be their stepdad, but Marshall, he was about 14, 15 at the time. And we skated together a lot. And, um, his mom was very liberal. She was from Southern California originally and had moved to Tennessee and uh, she would let the kids smoke cigarettes if they could come up with the money for them. She's like, I'm, she smoked, and she's like, I'm not buying you cigarettes, but if you want cigarettes, you know, go find some money and, and get a pack of cigarettes. So uh, Marshall had a, a smoking habit at 15 years old. He would bum cigarettes off of me. Well, the, the time when I first started uh, hanging out with him, I was smoking cool menthols. And then later on, I had switched to... Uh, Sterling, I think, Sterling Menthol Light 100s. Well, anyway, one night, and this was 
several years after the the peak of that summer or two there that, that we spent a lot of time together. Uh, I moved in with uh, my, ended up being my daughter's mother and didn't have a lot of time for Marshall. And uh, he had gone out to, to skate one night. We got a call. It was on a Saturday morning. It was weird the night before we were coming back from dinner. And my girlfriend at the time noticed, just, she's like, it's so black and so dark out tonight. And it was, it just had a creepy, eerie, heavy feeling. Well, the next morning, about 6 a.m., the phone rang, and she got the phone, and um, it had woken me up. And when I woke up, a pair of shoes that I'd had in the closet, they're L.A. gears with uh, yellow and black laces in them. I was cool like that. Were shoved up <laughs> like almost into my nose. And we didn't have a bed. We just had a mattress on the floor. So here's these shoes out of the closet. Almost My face was almost in them. And there was an unopened pack of cool cigarettes in there. And I'm like, you know, what the hell? Well, she comes in and says, come here, you need to come to the phone. I go in and go to the phone. And it was Marshall's mom saying that he had gotten killed the night before. He had snuck out to go skateboarding mm. and was on the uh, shoulder of the road. And a car made turn a little too tight. And he went through the windshield and it killed him instantly. Mm. But I've I've always thought that that was his way of telling me goodbye because that's I hadn't worn those shoes in months, but that was shoes that I had skated in. I didn't smoke those that brand of cigarettes anymore, but here was a pack in the shoe. And the shoes were like literally in my face. I, my, I was kind of hanging off the edge of the mattress and my face was resting on the edge of the shoe. So that's something like he would have done. He was a prankster. He liked to, to play jokes on people and things. And that was, I just, I had that feeling that he just, he let me know goodbye. Hmm. You know that, that I'm out of here, and haha, your shoes are in your face. You know, and thanks for the cigarettes. Hmm. Did you maintain any contact, or did you ever? Do you tell the uh, the mother about that? Uh, I'm still friends with the mother, and but I've I've never told her that story, yeah. and uh, I, I probably need to, but uh, I just. I just never have. I just, I just kind of kept that. Now I could probably tell that at the time. Of course, she was very, very torn up, and she's she's a believer in the uh, the supernatural stuff. She uh, likes to use the Ouija board and things like that. In fact, after uh, Marshall was killed, she stopped using the Ouija board for a while because she's claimed that every time she tried to use the Ouija board, Marshall was the, the spirit on it. Hmm. And uh, she's the only person I've ever seen that could use the Ouija board by herself. And then somebody told me they walked in on her one time. The planchette was moving and she didn't have, she wasn't touching it. It was moving by itself. So again, that was, that was just a rumor that was unconfirmed, but she, she was good on, on the board. She, she could tell you things that she had no way of knowing. But uh, I, yeah, I just, for some reason, I just, I never told her about that. I probably need to let her know that, but it's in the book. She hasn't read the book, but we are still in contact, still friends. Hmm. She still lives in Tennessee and still works the same place she did, or we did, back in the 80s. So. Oh, really? Wow. Let's talk about the thing in the ditch. Now, that one, that's getting into some frightening territory there. There have been a few things that actually scared me. That that was one of them. Uh, there, where we lived in, in rural West Knox County, there was a ditch beside the house. It was yeah, maybe 10, 12, 15 feet deep in, in the deepest parts and a little bit less than that as you went, kind of went up a hillside there. 
And uh, parts of it we played in. We built forts. We had a, a rope swing over the ditch. But in the, the upper part, I didn't go up there much. And uh, one day I had walked out of uh, the back door and just kind of went up the hill. And it's about a half a mile up in the woods. And I had gone up to the ditch. There was an old uh, animal pen up there that my brother at one time had had uh, hunting, dogs, hunting dogs. I don't know if you ever heard of Walker Hounds. They're, they're famous in Tennessee. Kaz Walker, yeah, the yeah. grocer magnate from uh, the last century, raised uh, expensive hunting dogs. My brother had Walker Hounds. And when he dog, had a dog come into heat that he didn't want to, to have pups, he had a pen up there, an enclosure that he would put it in. But... He had since moved away and taken up other hobbies, and the pen was just kind of rustling away up there in the woods. And I'd gone up to take a look at that, and it was beyond repair, falling down. Well, I go to the edge of the ditch and just kind of stand there looking down in. And as I kind of turn to walk away, I hear something in the leaves, and something big, I mean human-sized. But I spin back around, and whatever this was, came over the, the edge of the ditch, out of the ditch, and was coming toward me at a okay. very high rate of speed. And there was nothing there. I mean, there was nothing that I could see other than the leaves being kicked up in its wake. Like, say, if you were running through heavily horsed woods and with a large, lot of leaf bed there and kind of kicking your feet and not picking them up the, the way the leaves would spray off to the sides... It was like that, so it wasn't a, a moment of, you know, gee, I wonder what that is. It was like an <clears throat> instant fight or flight, you know, this that survival instinct kicked in. I ran down the hill. Whatever it is chased me for a while. I don't know how far because I, I literally didn't look back, but I could hear it. And I just, I ran screaming. I was about eight years old. And my mom actually heard me coming. This is like a half a mile away. She heard me coming and was out on the back porch to see what the, the problem was. And I was just inconsolable. I think I went in the house and hid under the bed. And um, finally, uh, when my dad got home, my brother just happened to be with him. He, my older brother, actually lived on, had his own house and everything a couple miles away at that point. And uh, my mom told them the story that I related as best I could. And I was still shaken up, related as best I could to them what had happened. They went up there and looked, and no sign of anything other than uh, they could tell the leaves had been disturbed and that something big had been after me. And they conjectured maybe it was a, a big dog or a bear even. So usually don't have bear in that part of East Tennessee, but not too yeah. far away, Maryville towns and places like that. You, you have bear, but... There was no bear. There was no dog. There wasn't anything. <laughs> it was invisible. And so this kind of, you know, died down, forgot about it. I never went to that part of the ditch again until I was 15. So we, we moved from there, and it wasn't too long before we moved. I'd just, you know, walking around, taking one last look at the places I'd played while I was growing up. And I thought, you know, I'm going to walk up there. I haven't been up there, you know, in, what, seven years so I walked back up there, and I'm just kind of looking around, thinking, you know, I wonder what that was that, that scared me when I was a kid. Well, all of a sudden, I hear this noise and leaves. Something comes up over the ditch. Same exact circumstances. I can't see it, but I can see the leaves being kicked up in its wake. I 
tear down the hill. I didn't scream and cry this time. I'll give myself that much, but I did run like I was on fire. Ran down the hill and uh, somewhere about eh, just about the time I broke out of the tree line, I didn't hear it anymore. So it didn't didn't follow me out of the woods. I made it back to the house and I, I even you know I would get I got a friend to try and help me. We would I wouldn't go up there, but I would send him up there and I would hide behind a tree. He was the bait. You know, John, walk up there to the ditch. You know, I'm going to stand here. You walk up there and see if you see anything. So, like, I like, uh, do you remember uh, Wild Kingdom? Uh-huh. <laughs> Marlon Perkins would stay at the Jeep, and he would say, right. Jim, you know, Jim, go look at the bear. I'll stay here with the Jeep. You know, so I'm going to be here in the air conditioning the- <laughs> while you go over there and mess around with the big snake. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's kind of the same thing. You know, I'll stay here behind the tree so I can get away, walk up the ditch and see if anything comes after you. Nothing ever did. My dad and my brother, they were as, you know, confused about it as I was. They would go up there and walk up and down the ditch. Never saw anything. Nothing ever bothered them. And then we moved away like that. I haven't been back since. That's been, you know, 30, 40, almost 40 years ago. So, um, you got- but I did find out later on that that ditch line was actually the original roadway through there. It had been a road, a dirt road, since around the time of the Revolutionary War huh. and uh, also through the Civil War. In fact, uh, there the property we had, there was seven springs, seven natural springs on that property that converged into one and flowed into the lake, which was about 200 yards away. So that had been a watering stop. At, at one point, those those springs, and there had been, I think there had been some battles or skirmishes there. We used to find Civil War bullets and found a part of a bayonet broken off in a tree when we uh, burned a, a dead tree once. And the, the place had a heaviness to it, especially in the bottoms there on the other side of the spring. I remember being a kid and playing down in there, and if it got dark, it just you know be like, okay, I need to get out of here. And then once I crossed the water. I would feel okay, and I didn't know it at the time, but apparently ghosts can't cross moving water. Hmm. But uh, anyway, flash forward another five years or so. I'm at a party after work, and it's one of these parties where I don't really know anybody except the person that I came with, the guy that I worked with, and I'm not sure how many of the people he knew. Well, somebody had found a Ouija board behind the couch, and even though the hostess didn't really want to, a couple of girls were, were messing around with it. So they started going around the room asking people questions. And I thought, I've got one for you. And they, they came to me, and I said, what scared me when I was a kid? That's all I said. I had that incident in mind, but I didn't give them any more information. They didn't know me, never know them, never seen them again. They've never seen me. And the, the board spells out water sprite. Oh. I'm thinking, yeah, okay, I, you know, that, that didn't mean anything to me. Well, the next day I go to the library. This was pre-internet. So I looked up water sprite, and there was another word for it. It was like dryad, D-R-Y-A-D. It's an elemental spirit that is known to guard areas and chase humans away. And I'm like, how perfect is that? And I've also been associated with the buried treasure and the particular area in Solway where we lived. There was a legend of a treasure that was buried somewhere there right after the Civil War. So maybe it was kind of a, you know, how the pirates would kill one of the crewmates and leave it with the treasure so his spirit would guard the treasure. Maybe that sort of thing. I don't know. But according to the Ouija board, there was an elemental spirit that chased me out of the woods. We got to find a way to... uh 
to deprive that water sprite of its power so we can get that we can get that treasure. <laughs> well, all I can do is scare you. We just well, need, you know, you know had, where it is. I Let's had just go dig. About that area where I there was a certain rock that I had to move, and there was uh, gold coins under there. But I said I wouldn't go back to that area after the <laughs> after what it was chasing me away. What did you say, Rob? But all you got to do? Well, I said it can't do anything other than scare us. I'll go dig. Okay. <laughs> Steve knows where. <laughs> Use me as bait while it's chasing me through the woods. You guys can go get the, the gold coins and then split them with me. Deal. That sounds like a, that sounds like a setup to a bad horror movie. Like it comes after all of us. You know. <laughs> Let's talk about another one from your childhood that is uh, I found exceptionally creepy, and that's the haunted photograph. Yeah, that one. I, I have no explanation for that one, and. That one didn't really scare me as much as it just weirded me out and gave me a creepy feeling. There was a, an elderly lady that my mom was friends with when I was little. <clears throat> Excuse me. Name was Miss Fox, and she had to be like 100 years old. I mean, she had been old when my mom was a little girl. And um, my mom would still stop by and visit her occasionally just to see how she was doing. And uh, she would give me things when we'd go visit, and... Odd as it was, some of the things she would give me was junk mail. She got lots and lots of junk mail, and she would save it and, I guess, gift it to kids. Well, at one point, she had donated to, like, um, orphans overseas, and they had sent her an envelope with uh, maybe a dozen or so kids' pictures. And these were real photographs. This was, you know, before all the facsimile and uh, laser printing and stuff. These were real photographs of these orphans. From uh, I want to say it was like Cambodia or Vietnam or somewhere in in Southeast Asia, that hmm. area, maybe South America even. And uh, she gave me these pictures of these kids, and uh, I took them home. I was playing with them, you know. I had comic books, and I collected paper things anyway. If I'm here, I liked boxes and and advertising and things like that. So I added these pictures to my collection. Well, there's one time I had stashed some comic books under the couch. That was where I liked to keep them in the, in their living room there. And then I would just reach under the couch and pull them out and start reading. Well, I raise up the flap of the couch to pull the comic books out. And here's a photograph of one of those kids sitting up under there, like leaning against the, the leg of the couch. And it was this boy. And then now when I think about this, it's his eyes were... They looked black. They were the darkest eyes I'd ever seen. I don't think he was like a black-eyed kid or anything, you know, now that I think about it. But he had these very dark, piercing eyes. And it just had this look on his face. You know, like, he, of course, he's an orphan. How happy is he going to be? But you know, some of the kids would at least try to fake a smile or something. This kid looked pissed. He looked like he wanted to strangle you and and you know rip your throat out. Yeah. So that kind of frightened me. So I... I Got rid of the the pictures and stuff, threw them away, put them in the garbage, and that was a big deal when I was a kid. Lived down the country, you got to burn your garbage, so that was one of my favorite jobs. After I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I would help my dad set the garbage on fire. And uh, anytime there was a hairspray can in there, that was a bonus. Because <laughs> <laughs> an explosion, you know, a fireball over the top of the house and. My dad would always say, "No, be careful tonight. You know, there's an Aquanet can in there or something. <laughs> you know, great. So anyway, I threw these orphan kids' pictures away because it freaked me out. Watch them burn. And then yet, 
probably, I don't know, a couple of weeks later or something, back under the couch, same place, I found same kid's picture again. Ugh. And it just, one of those things, I'm like, okay, I know I got rid of you and you're back. It was like Chucky or something. Yeah, terrifying. And at that time, I think I, I put it in a soup can or something. I, I tell how I got rid of it in the book. But I think I put it in a soup can and poured alcohol or lighter fluid or something in there and burned it again. And this time there was like a knocking noise that came from uh, the can or whatever I put it in to get rid of it. But that's that was just you know, more disturbing than anything. Like, you know, can a photograph be haunted? Can, you know, does, you know, because cultures like the Native Americans believe that photography would steal your soul. You know, if you took somebody's picture, you had captured their soul there. So it makes you wonder about uh, some of the superstitions and things like that and, and why they feel that way. And, but yet, you know, maybe the kid and just, like I said, it did, I didn't have the sense of sadness or, or need to chat looking at the other kids. This kid looked like, you know, Ted Bundy or something, like a little hmm. serial killer in training. I've always wondered who the kid was, what he what happened to him if he became, you know, some kind of third world despot or dictator or something that, that killed a lot of people. I would almost wonder if it was trying to draw your attention to something. Yeah, it could have been, but... I, mean, I can't it think just, of what, but it didn't frighten me as much as it just, you know, gave me the creeps. Uh, that would give me the creeps, especially if you know you burned it and it came back. I yeah. mean, that'd be yeah, like, yeah, and it came back. That's like that's like Annabelle or something, you know. <laughs> uh, but the second time was the charm, and I never saw it again. So, huh? Yeah, that's a, that's I mean, an interesting story. Where I missed it. You know, I picked up the whole handful of them, and that one of all of them could have flipped. I mean, there's, you know, things can happen, but I remember burning it. So, <laughs> Right, right. No no rational explanation for that one. Let's talk about the uh, haunted, well, two things. When you lived in Vegas, and one was the haunted house that you had some experiences in, and then also the haunted casino that you worked at. Oh yeah, Vegas is, is there's all kinds of ghosts in Vegas. They're they're all over the place. But uh, this one particular house, I, I rented the basement. I had a photography studio at the time. I was a professional photographer, and the uh, house was built in the 30s. And the way Vegas history was, there was no real Vegas Strip until the 40s when Bugsy Siegel started the Flamingo. Everything else is downtown, like where Fremont Street things are. So the area where this house would have been in the 30s would have been out in the middle of the desert. I mean, there was nothing out there at that time. Um, it had uh, hidden rooms. There was a, a room behind a bookcase as you went down the stairs. There was a, uh, looked like there had been a church or some kind of meeting place, <clears throat> excuse me, in the bottom of the house at one time. The, the neighbors up the street who had lived there since the 50s said that they had heard that it was a, uh, some kind of weirdos used to meet there and have some, some kind of religious ceremonies. There was like a, a window that opened from this like inner sanctum into one of the side rooms. And just the whole place was strange and had an, an odd feeling to it. And um, I hadn't been living there long, and I started noticing things. There was just me and the, the girl that, that owned the house. She had the upstairs, and we shared the kitchen, living room, and things like that. Well, there was times when I knew she was gone that I would hear upstairs like sound like somebody walking around had hardwood floors 
and I would hear somebody and I'd think she'd come back or, you know, something had happened or whatever. I'd go up, nobody would be there. And she had a little dog that was a odd looking little thing. It was half Corgi, half German Shepherd. Figure that one out. <laughs> but, uh, his name was Stubby, no less. And, um, there were certain areas of the house that Stubby would not go. And I mean, he was a total childhood. He loved food. I would cook for him and things. She had a gourmet kitchen there that she never used. But there were places in the house you could not lure him with food. There was one little doorway into the hallway, from the hallway into the kitchen. He would not go through. He would go down the stairs, out the side doggy door, around to the side of the house, come in the other doggy door in the kitchen, and get to the food. He Instead of walking, you know, just a few feet. And uh, another time, I was downstairs, and I heard just this most mournful, miserable howl almost like uh, between a howl and a scream. It, it made the hairs raise up on my arms and the back of my neck. It sounded so weird at first. So I go up, and Stubby is in the hallway, like kind of up against the wall, and he's pinned to the floor like something is holding him down by the back, just like pushing him into the ground. And he's scrambling. He's clawing at this hard wood trying to get away and letting out this just unearthly, ungodly howl, and I'm just, it kind of made me mad, and I'm just like, leave him alone, let go of the dog, you know, I shouted, and all of a sudden, he just pops up, like whatever it was, let go, and he tore down the hallway, and uh, wouldn't go back into his owner's room for several days after that, Mm. and uh, another time, this was on like a Friday night, my roommate was out of town, she'd gone to San Francisco for the weekend, I just I had a the the bathroom upstairs had a big garden tub and I decided to go in there and take a, a nice long soak and I had, had just gotten in the tub and I hear what sounded like somebody dragging a full metal garbage can up and down the hallway several times I mean just outside the the bathroom where I was so I get up get the soap and water off of me put on a rub go out there absolutely nothing I get back in the tub same thing again. And I dry off, go out, look, nothing. Third time, I didn't bother to go look. It carried on for, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, and then it just stopped. But there was nothing out there. Um, another time in the room that I slept in downstairs, which was the one that had the weird window in the wall between it and the other room where there was, like, recesses set in the wall, like where you would have maybe candelabras or, or something. Uh, I had my clothes hanging up on a rod. There was some built-in shelving there. And uh, you just had these, like, two little U-shaped things that held a wooden rod. I had my my clothes hanging on that, and uh, all of a sudden, it would just, it would fall for no reason. Like, you would have to lift the bar, the wooden rod up out of these U-shaped holders to get it to fall. So the it would fall. I would, or I would come in and all my clothes would be on the floor and the rod too. Well, one night I I hear this noise. I looked, all my clothes are on the floor. So I I took the wooden rod, put it in a place and put screws in either end through the shelving so that it can't be removed and hung my clothes back on it. And I'm like, okay, there, now what you going to do? Turn the lights out. Five minutes go by. I hear this crash. I get up, I flip the lights on, the bar is still in place because I've screwed it in there, but every one of my clothes, I had like pants and jackets and things, 
still on the hangers in the floor, laid out neatly in a line like they had just been picked up <laughs> off the rod and laid down on the floor. And I'm like, okay, fine, you win. I'll leave them on the floor for tonight. And I just I left them there, and I think the next time I put them up, they never never fell off after that. And then uh, some other things that used to happen there, I would have uh, photo shoots downstairs. I had a large open part that opened to the outside that had French doors and uh, floor-to-ceiling windows and stuff down there, so there was a lot of good natural light. And I would shoot down there either in the mornings or the evenings. You have in photography, what's called the magic hour, which is around 7 a.m., around 7 p.m. when you get the low light angle, kind of golden coloring to it just because of the sun's angle. Sure. And uh, I was having a, a model shoot one night or one evening, and I had about hmm, half a dozen models or so over. And um, while I would shoot downstairs, the others would be upstairs watching TV, and I would, I, you know, it was a catered event, stuff. it was a portfolio event, so... I had things done up really nice. Well, one girl comes up to me and she's like, I don't know if I can stay here. She's like, the one of the girls upstairs is talking trash about everybody. So that girl came down. I'm like, you know, what's going on? And like, uh, Brooke says, you were talking trash about everybody. And she's like, no, she said, I, I heard somebody talking, but I thought it was Brooke. Well, it turns out in the living room upstairs, especially near one of the walls there. And, and I, eventually heard it but you could hear like a voice talking just out of earshot and it would say things to these girls like you're not very pretty for a model or <laughs> you know you shouldn't be doing this or uh, you know you're they would tell them they're ugly and things like that sounds and, like it was just starting to start shit other yeah yeah it would just like to stir things up and that's it was almost like it was kind of malevolent but just in a mischievous sort of way and um so got all that straightened out, and uh, we had the seance in the house one time in the, the hidden room uh, behind the bookcase there, and uh, just we didn't really contact anything, but the candles would blow out, and we would hear things walking around. So it was it was definitely scary. But the the weirdest thing that happened one time, I had a girl in from Detroit who was doing uh, shooting a some shots for a portfolio. And I had up her against a, a brick wall with this outfit on. In, in one frame, she's she's standing there. The next frame, she's got three scratches down the b- back of her leg, like bloody scratches. Ooh. I mean, literally from one frame to the next, they just appeared. So less than a second there. And she and I'm like, hey, you're bleeding. And she looks down and, and she freaks out. And she's like, don't you know what this means? And I'm like. No, I don't. And she told me that it was demonic, that the three was the mocking of the Trinity, and there was some kind of demon in the basement there. And she grabs her stuff and just leaves, and I never saw her again. But um, somewhere I still have that picture. You can see one frame, back of her leg, nothing. Very next frame, and I had it on continuous, you know, just picture after picture after picture. One frame, nothing. Next frame, three very distinct scratches on the back of her leg. And there was nothing. I mean, she hadn't turned. She hadn't moved. There was nothing we could have scratched her. But uh, she insisted it was demonic and, and left and never came back. Huh. <laughs> wow. It, it really sounds like it had more of like a prankster kind of... 
kind yeah, of thing going just, on. They like to it. mess with you. It would throw your clothes on the floor or make yeah. a lot of noise or torture the dog. But she was the only person I know of that it physically harmed. But she, I, I think I'd mentioned something about the ghost and she had kind of popped off about it, you know. So it, it had a reason to go after her with a little more vengeance. And the casino was fairly weird, too, that you worked at. Yeah, that's and I found out later on that a lot of people that I worked with that had similar experiences, and we never shared it with one another. It's uh, Bally's Casino, and, and where it's at now is on the site of the, the MGM Casino that burned in, oh gosh, I forgot the year. I want to say like 83. And uh, where Bally's at now is just kind of retrofitted into what was left of the, the MGM after the the fire. And then the, the new MGM, which is down toward the south end of the strip there, is, is all new. But uh, there were, I think, 80, 80-something people that lost their lives in that fire. Uh, some of them from jumping out of the windows on the, the side street there at Koval. And uh, others that were just like refused to leave. There was one story about some ladies that were playing blackjack and they were winning. And the dude was like, "We got to get out of here. The place is on fire." And they're like, "No, I'm winning. We're not going anywhere." And about that time, a fireball ripped through the casino floor and actually just burned up the cinders right there where they were sitting. Oh, uh, another. I mean, this is a totally Vegas story. God. Somebody saw a man walk across the street. He was burned. He was only wearing part of his underwear and I think maybe some socks. Burned, but he he walked across the street to uh, Caesars and uh, started playing roulette. He said this had to be a lucky day because he had survived the fire at Bally's. <laughs> Probably in shock, but that was told me by the security guard as a true story. Wow. But um, anyway, so this place, it, it had had its, its shared death, and just right around the corner, there at the corner of Koval, and uh, I can't remember the cross street, that's where uh, Tupac got shot. Oh, yeah? So there's, all areas kind of, you know, got a, a strange aura about it anyway, but... um I was uh, managing a photo lab there for the uh, the company that had the souvenir photo concession. Like if if you go see a show, the camera girls and guys will come around and get your picture, and then try to sell you a, an album or a folder with the pictures in as a souvenir after the show's over. And uh, the the theater that's there, it's historic. If you ever watched any of the old Dean Martin roasts from the seventies, the the theater there in Bally's is that theater. And um, upstairs behind there, they call it the celebrity hallway uh, in the bathrooms. They have tables that have all these celebrity signatures and things on them. And there's been reports of, of celebrity ghosts and things up there, too. But never experienced anything like that. But in the, the photo lab where we worked, it was like this maze of rooms. It had originally been set up to do... Um, regular film photos so chemical tanks and things like that that had been taken out in all these rooms that were no longer used when everything switched over to digital a few years ago well there was one particular room in the back where the had a sliding door it had been the dark room uh the the door would not stay shut and the light would not stay on and uh you would you would go back there and find turn the light out, close the door, and then it would be just the opposite. Whichever you did, it would change it around. And there was also a um, access panel for the fuse box back there. 
And this was the ones where you had to like push the thing in and turn it to open it or close it. You could push it in, lock it, go back there a half hour later, stand wide open. The door you shut's wide open, the light you turned off is on. And then finally it just got to a point where like, I'm okay, you know, whatever, I'm just going to leave it that way. And then, you know, you can be happy with it. Well, one of the other managers, like middle management came over one night and uh, he's just like looking around. He's like, I never liked working in this lab. And I, I kind of knew where this was going, but I didn't lead him on or anything. I'm like, yeah, really? And he said, yeah, there was a, a light back in the back there that wouldn't stay off and a door that wouldn't stay closed. And I'm like, bingo. And then another night I was sitting there with two of my runners, which were guys that helped the photographers. Uh, they would help them package and sell their photos after the, the show. Sitting there, these two runners, a couple of Hispanic kids, I think they were cousins. And um, I see this black shapeless blob come out of the wall, cross the, the room and go back toward the area where the door won't stay closed. And I'm not going to say anything. Cause like I said, you know, sometimes I see stuff all of a sudden these kids are like, did you see that? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like crossing themselves and stuff. They left and went across the street to uh, Caesars and refused to return. And I had to get <laughs> runners sent over from another lab. And then, uh, there's a friend of mine, Mindy, she's been on, uh, Shannon LeGros into the fray radio. Um, she worked there with me. She lives in Vancouver now across the river, but we, we knew each other in Vegas. And, uh, that was the first place I ever worked with her was at Bally's. And then years later, after I'd already moved to Portland, she came over to visit. And I said, did you ever have anything weird happen to you at Bally's? And she's like, oh my gosh, yes, all the time. And she talked about like in the, the ladies' room, uh, they would hear things in there. The, the water would turn itself off and on. There were people that got slapped and got their hair pulled and all this <laughs> stuff. And then in the men's room, that would happen as far as uh, the toilets would flush when nobody was in there. And uh, you could also, I think you had to sit in the last toilet, but you could hear what sounded like somebody snoring. Huh. Like somewhere, you know, in the bathroom, but there would be nobody in there. But you could hear somebody in a very deep sleep snoring. And I, I heard that and several other people I knew heard that. So there's there's some residual energy there. I think it's from the people that, that died in the fire, you know, and that lost their life, or who knows, it may have been there to begin with. How, how many people died in that fire? I I, I want to say eighty something. I don't wow, have to look it that's up. That's a lot. Just this the story about the two old ladies playing blackjack and burning to death at the <laughs> table. That just. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's typical Vegas. I mean, there's people that there were streaks there and they're not moving. That that really gives you hope for the human race. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, survival of the fittest. That's that's a Darwin Award right there. What are you gonna say, Luke? That'd be a nice painting. Two ladies gambling while you see the fireball coming toward them that they're not noticing. You should draw a, that right now, Luke. Yeah. This is the air hits the flashover point, but it did. It incinerated them right where they sat. God, just like sp- charred, charred skeletons left at the blackjack table. Yeah, <laughs> it's morbid, man. <laughs> Let's talk about telepathic phone calls. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that's 
you deal with this sort of thing and this this darkness, the blackness, the evil stuff, you've got to have a sense of humor about it. Yeah, you know, you sometimes do. I mean, there's nothing funny about two old ladies burning to death. Yeah, it's hilarious. You know, it's just like okay, but it was. I think that it being by their own hand, there's a. A German term called Schadenfreund, which literally translates to sorry friend, and it's an amusement or delight in the misery of others. And I like to think of it sometimes as karma. You know, when you see something happen to somebody that deserves it, that's to me, that's that Schadenfreund. You know, that's like, right. uh, okay, you got yours. <laughs> yep, exactly. Let's talk about the telepathic phone calls. Okay, that one was. I was probably in my early 20s. Uh, I was at my mom and dad's house. I think my dad was still working at the time. It was before he had retired. And uh, I was asleep on the couch, I believe. And my mom was doing something in the kitchen. And uh, all of a sudden, I was dreaming. And I was in sort of that waking state where I'm half asleep, I'm half awake. A very lucid dream. And I'm in a dark place. It's just everything is pitch black, but I can hear people talking. It's a very, very low, very polite murmuring. And then I realize I'm in a funeral home. And then the first thought is, I'm dead. I'm the one in the coffin. Hmm. But then I realize, no, I'm not dead. I'm just. I'm observing this or I'm listening to this and still hear the murmuring, the murmuring. Well, then the phone rings and then in the dream, I'm thinking, okay, I got to figure out who's dead. Well, the phone rings, wakes me up. My mom picks it up and then just starts wailing. And it was one of her brothers. Uh, his uh, child had died in a fire and they had just found out about it. He, he was separated. Him and his wife were divorced. The kid was with his mom. She was smoking in bed. The uh, the house caught on fire, and they both died. And that was, I mean, it was one of those things. You know, I, I like, knew that something was going to happen before it happened, but not soon enough to stop it. And I've had that happen several times, you know, where I'd have a dream about something that maybe happened a week or two later, but I didn't, didn't know who or where. I had a dream once I saw a, a pile of... Uh, concrete pipe on a construction site break loose and crush a guy to death. I mean, just absolutely pulped him. It was very, very vivid dream. Woke me up. I just drifted off to sleep and I, I pondered that. And it just, it was so real and so amazing. And then the only thing I could tell that it was somewhere in the South because of the red clay dirt. And, um, about two weeks later, I read in the paper where something had happened similar to that. I think it was down in Kingsport, Tennessee, you know, a few hours away. But And I've often thought, you know, why why do I have dreams about things like that if I don't have any way to react to it or to, to stop it or anything? I've, I've had dreams where I've, I've seen uh, nuclear mushroom clouds over American soil, but, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know when or where and... UN troops were shooting American citizens in the face in this dream. So, you know, maybe I need to stop eating those tacos before bedtime, or maybe <laughs> I'm really dreaming something here, you know? Yeah, I've yeah. actually, I've had a lot of dreams like that with mushroom clouds. Uh-huh. And uh, basically it looked like in the dream, uh, one of the, the mushroom clouds was over Chattanooga, and the other one was up uh, north, probably near the Kentucky, Virginia 
North Carolina border up in that part of Tennessee. But it's weird because you know, I, I've lived in Tennessee in almost 13 years now, but I still have dreams about Tennessee occasionally. Hmm. Well, I think that's natural for sure. Lived most of your life here. so Yeah, yeah, I was there for 40 years. So, Well, let's talk about uh, a story that is not in the book. And this is the oh, the one you're going for. Yep. This is the your black your own black eyed kids encounter. Which yeah. uh, until yeah. I heard as this, as I knew as soon as I knew what you're going to ask. I mean, my heart is just like beating double time right now. Yeah, but uh, that's that's the weirdest thing that that's ever happened to me by far. I didn't talk about it for 15 years. And basically, it was just kind of a, I wasn't afraid of ridicule or anything like that, because I've had all kinds of weird things happen to me. Sure. But that was absolutely the most fear I've ever felt. I mean, the, the thing in the ditch, that scared the, the hell out of me. The There's another chapter in the book called The Beast of Swanson Lane. That really shook me up. But this encounter, it just did trumps anything that I've, I've ever had. It was... Late nineties, early two thousands. I was uh, moonlighting as a, a network uh, engineer. I was had a job with an IT department for a medical management group, and then nights and weekends, I hired myself out. You know, I just hired gun to do networking and things. And I was uh, reworking a, a big uh, breast clinic there in Knoxville. It was multi floors, and I was redoing their network. Well, I had finished one morning about 2 a.m., and I was I was getting ready to leave. At the time, I had a little Mazda Miata convertible, and this was, I would say it was like sometime in the summer, maybe late summer, still cool enough that I could have the top down because I had left the top down while I was in there. Put my tools and things in the trunk, and I noticed across the parking lot, maybe... 75 yards away, maybe not that far, maybe more like 75 feet. But there were two girls over at the edge of the parking lot sitting. One of them was standing up and the other was sitting on the curb. And I'm thinking, okay, it's 2 o'clock in the morning and there's a couple of girls out here that look like the oldest one's maybe 12, 13, 14, the other one's probably 10, 11, something like that. I'm thinking, you know, this... This doesn't look right. You know, something's going on here. Well, about the time I noticed them, the one that's standing up starts almost it's like a chant. And it was like, he'll have to give us a ride. He can't tell us no. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. He'll give us a ride. He won't leave us out here. He'll take us with him. And it was just, just all in all like a continuous stream of psychobabble, but almost like they were trying to convince me that I was going to do this. You know, like she was so sure that... I was going to do it, and she's spouting all this off, and I'm thinking, no, this ain't going to happen. You know, it's, first of all, it's a Mazda Miata; it's only a two-seater. I don't have room for three people in here. Uh, second of all, I don't know either one of you. You're obviously both underage, and nothing good's going to happen with a you know thirty-something-year-old man and two preteen girls in a convertible at two o'clock in the morning. So, um, I. I started a little more hurriedly putting my stuff away and getting ready to go. The next time I look up, the other one has stood up as well and they've moved closer. And I didn't, that's the weird thing. I didn't see them move. I just looked up and they had moved. 
and they've covered about half the distance between me and them now, and they're under, kind of under the edge of a, a sodium vapor light there. It's not, not a real bright one, unfortunately, but they, they were wearing similar clothing. It was like jeans and, and, and hoodies, but I don't even know how to describe It's like the clothes were so new, like... Mm-hmm that they had never been worn, that they still had that off-the-rack look from the store. And I don't know, you know, how I was able to notice all this detail and stuff, but it looked like they were very, almost like homemade clothing or something. You know, it was very plain in structure, no, nothing frilly, no fancy stitching or anything like that. Almost like, say, if Amish kids, moms made them hoodies or something like that. Yeah. Same with the pants, dark pants and... I don't really remember anything about the shoes other than they were dark and clunky. But when they got into the, the light there, it was like <clears throat> they didn't have any faces. It was just, I couldn't see a nose, I couldn't see a mouth, but I could see the eyes. And it wasn't like you hear in some of the BEK stories where it was, you know, like these black pools of shiny or whatever. I could just tell that there were black places there where the eyes were supposed to be because the the way the light was kind of behind him and the hood was over the top of the head, but it just, I've never, never seen anything like that. It was almost like in the contact, these stories, the way the grays look where they just have like a slit for mouth and no nostrils. It was mm. almost like that. They were devoid of any features other than these huge eyes. And I just, I panicked. I fumbled. I couldn't even get the door to my car open. I ended up jumping over the door and into the seat of the car. I had trouble getting it started. And all this time, they're, they're like inching closer to me, or it looked like they were. I imagined they were. I finally, you know, cranked the car and it doesn't want to turn over. Finally, I fired up and I squeal out of the parking lot. I mean, I laid rubber and everything. And I could, I didn't look back. I didn't even want to look back. I was so scared. I mean, I was sweating at this point, like a feral almost like a flop sweat or something. I am absolutely drenched in sweat at this point. My heart's pounding. I feel like I'm having a heart attack or something. And I'm thinking, you know, part of me's thinking, it's just a couple of girls. You know, why am I so scared? And then the other part of me, this like instinct deep inside is like, you know, these aren't girls. You want to be far away from me or whatever this is. And I, I was supposed to go to my girlfriend's house that night. She only lived like maybe two or three miles from where this happened. But I went the opposite direction and drove to Oak Ridge to my parents' house, which was, you know, a good 10, 15 miles or something out of the way. But the, the whole way there, I was tearing down Mississippi Parkway. And I just, I, I was afraid to look back over my shoulder or even look in the rearview mirror. I, I did. I, I would look back occasionally, but I expected to see these girls like hanging on the back of my car or I would keep looking over at the seat. Like part of me was thinking, well, did they get in? And I didn't notice or, and it just, it was very irrational. I mean, if you read some of my experiences there, I've, I've been through some, some odd things and I've just, you know, had a, a national curiosity, but this, the fear that washed over me was the most inexplicable part. I've never, never felt that kind of fear from anything. I mean, I've been in natural disasters and, and things like that, and I've been caught in a tornado, you know, where I literally thought I was going to die, and I didn't have this kind of fear reaction. 
So I, I don't know what it was, but my instinct or my ability, my empathic, whatever, certainly picked up on it. And I mean, for days after that, I would, I would have these, and literally longer than that, I would have these nightmares. I would have frequently, you know, where I'm back in the parking lot and I see these girls and I know I've got to get out of there. And he said, I, I hesitated to talk about it for a long time. And then finally I was on the midnight in the desert with Heather Wade and I decided oh, okay. to tell it. And part of the fear was that there's a certain part of me that thinks that there are certain things out there, thought forms, if you will, that feed off that negative energy. And the more you think about them and the more you talk about them, the more power they can draw from you. And then, I mean, things like Slender Man or something like that, you know, that's the story is all these people, it's an invented creation, you know, on the internet, but then these people think about it and think about it and talk about it. And, and then it, it starts to manifest. Like there was, uh, yeah. There was a paranormal outfit back in the seventies that did that, where they created a ghost. I can't remember the Philip experiment. The, yeah, yeah. Where they they just uh, they would sit around and they would talk about all these things that this person had done, and then it would do, and then these things started happening. And I think it was kind of something along those lines. And I was afraid that if I talked about this, or if I told anybody, they would come back. I mean, no, no fear of ridicule or anything like that. I did stand up comedy in, in the eighties. I liked being laughed at, you know. So, I finally told the story, and then since that night, I've had some weird things happen. Uh, like I told you tonight, my internet going down. I blame the black eyed kids. Who right. knows? Uh, the night that I told the story, I, I came in. I went to bed. There was a, a female scream right outside my window. Mm. And I ran into my daughter's room. She's she's sound asleep. She didn't hear it. Haven't, haven't had any sightings, but I leave for work uh, before daylight. And I'll say, you know, before I go out to the door, okay, no black-eyed kids this morning, please. You know, before I leave the house. Mm. Uh, yeah. So it's, I mean, like right now, I'm, I'm kind of kind of shaky, you know, just, just recalling, like, when I said I knew what story you were going to go for, my heart right. sped up. Just, right. The 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 uh, what did you think when you started hearing some of the Black Eyed Kids stories coming out? Like, did you see you know, kind of was it kind of relief to know that there was others that had experienced it? Well, in a way, it was a relief, but then also it was thinking, oh, well, there's more of them out there. You know, I don't want yeah. to run into any more. And. Uh, there, there have been some males, but a, a lot of the stories it's, it's females that people run into. And again, I don't. Right. And uh, like the, the the knocking and things. That's there's been people talking about. You know, they would hear them knocking, and they knock and knock and knock and knock. I had something like that happen not too long ago, where somebody was knocking at my house, and I wouldn't go to the door because they just kept knocking and knocking and knocking. I'm like, I'm not going to go get your black-eyed kid. And I know that seems, you know, just irrational and, and senseless, but it just, it does something to you. And that the one lady that claims to have left them in and now she's dying, she's got some like weird form of cancer or leukemia or something that her husband had radiation burns and started having nosebleeds and things. It just, it makes you wonder. Yeah. <laughs> and are, are there people that let them in? Are there people that gave them a ride? And that was something else I found out there. It seems like they've gotten bolder. Like, once I looked into it and, and heard some of the other stories, a lot of the first ones were vehicle related. And I think the very first one 
in the in the modern area anyway, they were knocking at the guys uh, at the window of his van, wanting to be let into his van. Yeah. And then they've gotten bolder going up to houses and been uh, reports of them looking in windows and things like that. And one guy, he was, uh, I think he was a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL or something, went and got a shotgun, runs back to the door and they're gone. Nowhere. Yeah. I mean, went up and down the street. And so they, they have a way of disappearing and they, they know when you've had enough that, that most people are scared and they sense that, but then you have somebody that's, scared enough to want to kill them and then they they flee uh yeah i think there's very similar to, um aspects of this that that we from what we were talking about earlier the phantom clown phenomena i mean there's it's a it's very similar in some ways it's like it's there and then it's gone and you don't know where they come yeah. from and and they and, yeah. and 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 they and we've talked about it before you like that black eye motif is something big in horror and in science fiction and you see it uh-huh. on tv all the time and then all of a sudden this starts to re- it, it, the this phenomenon starts to reflect back our popular culture, our archetypes, our fears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes you wonder: is it some kind of interdimensional traveler? Is it, is it demonic? Is it the Nephilim? Is it you know what? What is these? You know, this and the clowns, or any of these inexplicable things. But yeah, if you, if you look at a lot of the. Uh, like uh, the Flatwoods monster and some of those things has the big yeah. black eyes. Mothman had big red eyes, but you know, there's, there's something to do with the eyes there. And uh, which both of uh, those, quit. both of those were um, were later explained away, <laughs> coincidentally enough, as owls. So we yeah, tie that into it as well. There we go. <laughs> yeah, that that'd be like you know somebody tell me that an owl was what chased me out of the ditch. So, you know, I grew up in, in the woods. I've yeah. seen owls and stuff. I've seen cranes. I've seen you know these big birds, but you're not going to mistake that for some of the things that people have reported. You know these eyewitness sightings where they try to discredit them and say, "Oh, an owl scared you," or you know it was a weather balloon or a swamp right. gas or right. whatever. You know, it's just. You know what you saw within reason. I mean, there there are things that can fool you, like that one story I've got in my first book, The, the Light in the Coffin, where the guy's walking home and he yeah. sees a light in a coffin and he's all shaken up and he thinks he's going to die, you know, and his dad takes him back out and it's a lightning bug caught in a spider web in a hollow log. So Yeah, I love that you included that story. get the best of you, but for something as widespread, especially like the clowns, you know, and... And, and even the black-eyed kids, apparently there's... But it makes you wonder why something like the clowns would go viral and you have copycats, but then you don't have people who run around trying to look like black-eyed kids. Maybe it's just easier to get a clown costume. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? Let, let's end uh, Let's end on kind of like a heartwarming note, and that is the story about the, the, the feather, the haunted feather. Yeah, and I've, I've had such a good reaction off that one. And I've actually had other people come forward after I published that and, and tell me a similar tale. And then the cool thing about that, the first my first experience with that other than my own, somebody had told me the story and then it happened to them and I didn't want to oh yeah, that happened to me too, you know, because it's like you're discrediting everything they've said. But the time that I was a kid, we had the house that I grew up in, the one that we've talked about all night here. 
And we had what was called the good living room. And that was where the nice furniture was. My parents were antique dealers, so we had some really fancy stuff in there. And that was where company, you know, if, if company came over, that was where you entertained company. Wasn't to play in there. You know, you had the, the other living room for that. You could jump on the couch and watch TV and lay on the floor and read comic books. The only thing you could do in the living room was entertain company or I could go in there and, and do my homework if I sat on the couch the way I was supposed to sit on it because the, the lighting was good in there because of all of the lamps. But anyway, that was where we would decorate for Christmas. We would we would put a tree up in that room. There was a big uh, picture window there across the front of the house and the front door. So we would always do our Christmas decorations in there. Well, I noticed probably from about the time I was three or four, so as far back as I can remember, you know, celebrating Christmas, that about Christmas time, sometimes before we had the decorations up, sometimes after, I would see a feather, of a white gossamer feather floating around in that room, and it would always be out of reach. It would be up close to the ceiling. And I remember, you know, attempting fate and climbing up on the back of the good couch, which I would have gotten a switch taken to me for if I'd gotten caught and trying to grab this feather, but it was always just out of reach, and it would just float around, you know, very just dreamlike, you know, and um, I would always see it around the holidays, starting sometime after Thanksgiving, and then by New Year's Eve, I wouldn't see it again until the next year. This went on for years, as as long as we lived in that house. I was never able to, to catch it or to get close to it. The, uh, the We didn't have any type of... Uh, we had which at that time they had introduced what was called steel heat, which was rods in the ceiling that, that heated the room, which it didn't do a very good job because all the heat stayed up near the top. So there wasn't any kind of forced air or anything that would have kept a feather aloft. If anything, the steel heat would have forced it down. And, uh, so there wasn't, you know, we didn't have vents, uh, furnace, forced air, central heat air, anything like that. But this would float around, and then it would just, like, disappear. Like, I would see it, and then I didn't see it. And then maybe, you know, a couple of days later, I would look up, and, you know, it'd just go floating by, but always out of reach. Well, this other person that, that, that told me the story, because, like I said, I never mentioned this to anybody, just one of those, you know, little idiosyncrasies of my childhood, one of the strange things that I had encountered, that uh, he told me almost exactly, word for word, the same story, that he would see this feather around the holidays, and it would float around, and he would try to catch it, and he got even more elaborate with his. He tried to catch it with a net, tried to throw things up, and uh, it had a pillowcase or something that he tried to catch it with. And... um, but as it turned out, his grandfather, who had passed away either right before he was born or right after he was born, had told the mother, his the daughter, that he would come back as a feather from time to time and keep an eye on him. Hmm. And that's a strange story. But I've had other people tell me since then. I mentioned Cisco Murdoch. She shared that story with some people in Apparently, that's popular in the Native American culture that there are gossamer feather to kind of to follow people around, and it's some sort of ancestral spirit, just like keeping a check on uh, the living. Do you have any Native American in your ancestry? I I do. I'm uh, on my dad's side, uh, Cherokee. My 
his grandmother was full, so which would make his mother half, my dad's a quarter, I'm an eighth of Cherokee. But the, I've always thought if it were a relative, that it was my would be my mom's dad. He was Italian, but he passed away when I was about six months old. But for some reason, when I think about it now, I I I think about him for some reason. Hmm. But it could be from the Native American side. Who knows? But I've seen the feather. I haven't haven't seen it since we moved from that house. But I saw it for. Almost 15 years every year around the holiday. Wow. Well, Steve, uh, we're going to close it out here in a second, but uh, tell everybody where they can get your books. And also, are you working on a new book? What's next for you? Yeah, I'm actually working on several. Uh, my books are available on Amazon.com. They're available for Kindle. You don't have to have a Kindle reader. You can read them on a smartphone. You can read them on a laptop, a computer. You get the Kindle reader program for free for any device. Uh, I'm going to have them in print one day, but uh, that's that's coming. Uh, right now, I've got several books that I'm working on. I've got one more volume of Tales from the Woods. Or, uh, weird, I'm sorry, Strange Things in the Woods that I'm working on. I've Excellent. got a, a book about uh, the Smoky Mountains, the Mists, Legends of the Smoky Mountains. Oh. And then I've got a new series coming up that's similar to Strange Things in the Woods, but it's not just in the woods, tentatively titled Tales from the Hills. So that one's going to be the same kind of stories, but not constricted to just the woods, because that was the common theme that I found with the first book that then spurred the next one, and now the, the third in the series, but uh, the next series that I've, I'm working on, it's it's out of the woods and just everywhere in the house, in the air, in the in the barn. <laughs> but it, it does still have that kind of a lot, a lot of Tennessee flavor there, a lot of a lot of country charm. A lot of people enjoy that. I guess people from other places that don't know what it's like to grow up in the country or grow up on a farm like to hear me tell these stories, you know about. Simple life in, in Appalachia and the, the not so simple life sometimes. Absolutely. Well, Rob, was there anything that you wanted to ask or Yeah, just real quick. Um since you started writing these books, have more people come forward with their stories? Uh, yeah, um, I get stories all the time from people. And I've also the coolest thing is I've inspired other people to write as well. I get probably one or two emails a week from somebody that says, you know, I heard you on such and such podcast and I or radio show and I read your books and, you know, I'm going to write down my family's stories because like you, if I don't tell them, they're going to be gone. You know, these, you know, my grandma's dead. If I don't tell these stories, you know, nobody's ever going to hear them. So that makes me feel good. And that was the real reason behind all this. I had kind of a, uh, real station at my grandmother's funeral, you know, all these weird stories and superstitions and stuff that it all died right there with her. But then I picked up the mantle, you know, and, and I'm writing books and telling stories and stuff about it now. So it's, it's a great way for a legacy to be passed on. You know, in the South, you have that oral tradition, but that's kind of gone anymore. So it's, it's gotta be written down or it'll be forgotten. Yeah. Agreed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Steve. Uh, stay on the line for us. We're gonna, we're gonna close this out, and we will be right back on Conspiranormal.
Welcome back, guys, to Conspiratorial. Luke, what'd you think about that? Man, I, I love the storytelling uh, episodes. It's so yeah. much fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, a few, a few times I wanted to jump in and I mean because everyone has their own kind of relatable stories uh, and had stuff like that happen at some point just weird yeah. weird instances you know the black eyed kids thing that was that was creepy as hell man yeah and I like how during that part he touched on the whole like not wanting to to feed that sort of a thing and we talked last week or the previous episode with Sarah uh, Sutherland about the same sort of thing about how um entities manifesting you know things that are popular in culture today or mm-hmm. or feeding off those kind of energies and negative energies and so it's an interesting little tie-in yeah i mean this the 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 time that i find fascinating about the black eyed kids too is how there's this association with the men in black phenomenon and and uh, also he made the point about the gray aliens and yeah remember um yeah, it was last year that we talked to last time we talked to Dr. David Jacobs about his about the hybrids um trying to learn how to integrate into society. Yep. Which you know, there's I have my own problems with some of his his research because I think it comes from a materialistic point of view, but uh it's interesting how those three or four things kind of interrelate with each other and that he could be coming at it from a totally different point of view than say like a Nick Redfern or Steve is coming at it from. So, um, and I was reminded too of Luke's story that he didn't actually get to see the, the faceless, uh, things in the, on the Oklahoma. Yeah. That's what I thought of whenever we, you said we're going to talk about faceless entities, uh, or the the Mark Wyatt. He had a, yeah. His father's experience that said that he saw something without a face, uh, this is from David Weatherly's blog, Two Crows Paranormal, which David Weatherly actually wrote. The, we had him on way back at the beginning. He wrote a book. Of, he read, He actually wrote the book about Black Eyed Kids, which I found out that creepy ass picture that uh, was actually that actually was Scotty Roberts that that did that that drew <laughs> that. So, uh, which I did not know. I saw like on a Facebook, uh, Scotty put some of his artwork out, up and one of them was the cover. And I was like, I didn't know you did that. That thing's creepy as hell, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I got to see these Gacy, uh, Ed Wayne Gacy paintings. Yeah. The John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. You, you can look them up on, you can, you can find them online. Just do like a Google image search. Yeah. But this is uh faceless entities in a creepy silence in Nashville. In the past couple of years, I've received a number of reports of faceless entities. These range from roadside encounters to manifestations of spirits with no facial features. While such reports aren't completely new, there does seem to be a slight increase in them. Researcher Albert S. Rosales is constantly digging up interesting accounts and recently posted his report on a creepy incident involving two faceless beings. The report was sent directly to Rosales, and the witness names are withheld by requests. Nashville, Tennessee. A summer night in 2013, 
The main witness and a friend decided to walk around the block in a pretty quiet suburban neighborhood. Once they started walking down the middle of the street, everything became strangely quiet. No crickets, frogs, wind, nothing. It seemed like the breeze stopped as well. They kept walking, and about halfway down the street, they saw a minivan and a driveway with the hood up, and there were these two things peering into the engine like they were studying it. They were white and had no faces. There was a soft glow coming off them like if they were reflecting a black light, but it seemed like there wasn't really a source for it. The white flowers in the yard had the same glow. The strange figures looked about normal height, two arms and two legs. They sort of jumped when the witnesses came into view like they were surprised. Then they half hid behind the van, and both witnesses immediately had this feeling like they could not look at them no matter what. That's probably the most scared the main witness has ever been. They kept walking. They both kept walking forward and watched out of the corner of their eyes, and the entities watched them while also trying to position themselves behind the van. The main witness got the impression that they weren't used to hiding much because they would look at them, then look at the van, then at themselves, then crouch behind the van a little more. The witnesses kept walking, looking ahead until they got to the end of the street. At this point, all the normal sounds returned, and they could feel the breeze again. Everything again felt normal. The main witness wasn't really sure if he was going to say something to his friend, but suddenly, and at the same time, they both stopped and exhaled really hard. He asked his friend if he had seen those white figures, but for most of the walk, they wouldn't talk about it, and his friend just told him to shut up. Strangely, the witnesses had the feeling that they shouldn't talk about what they had seen. Three years later, the main witnesses finally spoke to his friend about what they had seen. His friend looked pretty freaked out and asked the main witness if he remembered them crossing the street in front of them, which the main witness did not. He told him it was right after he fell or laid down, and all of a sudden, the main witness remembered right before he saw them. He looked over, and his friend was laying down on the side of the road, stiff as a board and not responding to anything the witness was saying. He was just blinking really hard. Eventually, he got up, and they just kept walking. Around the time that his friend fell to the ground is when everything became quiet and eerie. The witness didn't, doesn't know how he could have forgotten that part. The aura of silence created in the presence of the two figures is a curious aspect that I've heard in a small handful of cases before. It's somewhat rep rep reminiscent of the creepy gentleman in the episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, ghoulish figures who came, come floating in and create dead silence in their presence. Of course, there's something inherently disturbing about a figure without a face. Humans relate through their facial expressions and features, and to be confronted with a blank nothingness is most unsettling. I've actually heard this before. I don't remember where I ran across it, but... I posted it on Facebook a couple of months ago. Okay, I probably that's probably where I read it. And when it, I posted but... it, I said, oh, great. But it was in Nashville. <laughs> Faceless entities. Well, it's, there's so many different elements to the story. I love it. Like, um, the long-term memory loss that you know wasn't triggered until they spoke about it again years later, yeah. and you know the um, the silence, the weird like mm -hmm. perception distortions, and that's something that Steve's talked about in uh, one of the books, the Str uh, strange things in the woods. Talked about how the guy went, a guy went out into the woods, and all of a sudden, everything just got quiet. I remember that story, and yeah. dead quiet, like nothing. You could hear absolutely nothing. And then, uh, like, he walked from one place to another, and then all of a sudden it was like everything started up back again. And this is uh, this is something that if I, I think I understand it, like, it was in some of David Pilates' work, too, where he, they would talk about the missing 411 and the missing people. How sometimes they would, you would absolutely, you would hear absolutely nothing. And I think this is also something that Joshua Cutchin 
talked about in some of the fairy lore that people experience too. So interesting correlations there as usual. Everything usually kind of mm. yep. all bleeds together. Bleeds together. Uh, we were talking about that faceless one that we that I saw on, or I, I didn't get to see on the yeah. work trip that uh, that Debo and the other guy working with us saw. Something that I don't think that I ever even mentioned to you guys is that that like a uh, a few miles back there was an overturned truck like upside down in the ditch. What? Yeah. Oh yeah, really? A little yeah. bit creepier. So. I mean, and, and uh, I, I told him too. I was like, "Man, should we stop and like go see if they're okay? Because there's no one standing out by the truck or anything." And uh, I was, and he was like, "No, let's let's just keep rolling." I'm trying to get home. I was like, "Yeah, me too. Yeah, good choice. Let's let's just keep rolling." And they were that freaked out by by what they saw. Yeah, I mean, he wow. he didn't think anything of seeing the truck. He just kind of shrugged his shoulders. He was like, "Yeah, whatever. gotta wonder if there. <laughs> you really have to wonder if there even was a truck." I saw the truck. Yeah. Well, like, whether it was just like you were, it was something was being replayed at yeah, that at that man. moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's creepy. Yeah. I mean, you you can speculate a lot on that. But uh, next week, guys, uh, we will have uh, Jenny Ashford on, and we are going to talk to her about a couple of poltergeist experiences that someone close to her and also someone that has a book, couple of books that she has written about poltergeists. So I'm looking forward to that one as well. Um, and also I wanted to ask her about the, um, apparently she's a co-writer of a book called the say S E I T A N the satanic cookbook. So I know you'll definitely be interested in that one, Luke. Yeah, I know. But it's at she, four o'clock, so you, I don't know if you're going to be able. to I know make what it she's talking one. about. It's kind of like soy. It's like a better like soy alternative. Oh, is it really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, that caught my eye a while back because yeah. I was try, I was experimenting with vegetarian burgers, like cooking them, and I was like, Satan. Like, <laughs> what is this? I'm down. <laughs> is that similar to the uh, black metal video, the, the black metal chef, where he's I'm, cooking I'm sure up the pad thai? That's an episode. Thai. If it's not an episode, it needs to be. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, Rob, again, thank you for bearing with us through another double episode. Always. And uh, let's let's uh, let's push the leisure hour one more time. Oh yeah, um, check <laughs> out the leisure hour comedy podcast with uh, a lot of local Nashville comedians and musicians and people from just interesting people from around here. Uh, you can check out the episodes on ourleisure.com. It's h o u r leisure.com. Absolutely, and tell them where they can find us. And you can find us on our website, conspiranormal.com. Absolutely. And all the usual places, Fringe Radio Network, Deprogrammed Radio, Dark IPBN. Matter Radio, IPBN, Fringe Radio Network. XNXX. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, thank you for being here, sir, for enlightening us with uh, your more of your, your furry parties. Oh, you're welcome. And uh, I- take us out, Luke. Love. Well, I already sang. You that already one. did that. You already did <laughs> loving you because your boobs are nice. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I've always put him on the spot. Uh. <laughs> All right, guys. Come join us next time on Conspiranormal. <laughs> Yeah, sure.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 